Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. First, I'm going to hit just the basic things that we know about the scriptures, and it's seven pages of notes, but a lot of those are for you to go home and look at, okay? Um, number one, all scripture is inspired. And what do we mean by inspired? You've probably heard many messages. That means God breathed. God spoke to people what to write, or as they wrote, the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to recall, to write poems, songs, history, whatever it is. Uh, and, that in, and with that being said, on that belief system, there is this doctrine called the inerrancy of Scripture, as in all Scriptures are correct. There's no errors in them. There's no... Uh, contradictions, there's no mistakes historically, there's no uh, false timelines, made up people, stories that aren't real, right? The inerrancy of scripture means everything we read is from God and it's accurate, right? And so we get this idea, the doctrine of inerrancy from this text here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. I'm going to read it to you. And it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul writes this text here to his letter to Timothy, he's writing this letter to Timothy before the canon of Scripture is closed. Right? And so when he writes 2 Timothy, he's still got a few more epistles to write. This isn't the last one. John hasn't even wrote the Gospel of John, First and Second, Third John, or Revelation. None of those are written yet. But he writes this in the prophetic sense of all scriptures, including the ones that will be written, are God-breathed. And he's writing in a prophetic sense, but he's also referencing all the Old Testament canon. So one of the big questions is, the Old Testament is still valid for today because it's the Old Testament, and the New Testament is the New Covenant, and therefore it puts, puts the Old Testament in the shadow of no longer necessary. And that really is not the truth. All scripture is breathed out by God, right? So the Old Testament is just as valid scripture as the New Testament. Well, Stephen, why don't we do all the stuff in the Old Testament? Because when the cross of Jesus is on the timeline, things that, no long, things that are fulfilled in Jesus no longer apply after the cross. So why don't we sacrifice animals? Because Jesus became the sacrifice. Jesus became the sacrifice, so that's why we don't sacrifice animals for the atonement of sin. Does that make sense? So all of the Levitical law, right, when you get to the, the book of Leviticus and all the Levitical law, Deuteronomy, all the Mosaic law of how to obtain righteousness, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it doesn't apply to us because our righteousness is attained in Jesus. And so all the law and the prophets are summed up in the work of Christ. And then, so Jesus takes... The Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments over the Mosaic Law become 460 commands, right? That's a lot. And then by the time Jesus shows up, that 460 is expanded even more. Dietary laws, um, practices between, you know, husbands and wives, children, business dealings, how to take care of cattle, all the moral law. Jesus shrinks it back down, not to Ten Commandments, but to Two Commandments, right? 
And what are the two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. Y'all know it, right? What are we even doing in this class? <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And Jesus says, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. That doesn't mean these two eradicate all the law and the prophets. It means if you do these two, by default, you'll keep all the other ones. It's hard to love God with all your heart and yet break the first commandment of having other gods before you, before him. Or love your neighbor as yourself and then be guilty of murder because the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Does that make sense? And so the only thing the New Testament does is it empowers us to keep the moral law without having to fully know it. Uh, I mean, we probably could not spout out all 460 commandments, right? But we can keep them by being led by the Spirit. And if we are led by the Spirit, we won't yield to the flesh, the works of the flesh, and therefore we keep the moral law. Does that make sense? And so all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, it is breathed by God, which means God spoke through prophets, kings, shepherds, peasants. This is what I want to say in the Old Testament to the children of Israel. And then by inference to us, who are the spiritual Jews, and in the New Testament, what Jesus said and what the apostles heard Jesus said and teach to us as the church. And they both apply to us, okay? We're only on point number one. You with me? The Bible is a valid historical source. When we look at the scriptures as being inspired, we need to know that they are not just a philosophical book. The scriptures are not just philosophy, religious teachings. It is a history book. The entire Old Testament is the history of the Jewish people, right? Just like we have American history, which America is a very young, young, young nation. We're 200-something years old. The Jews are 5,000-something years old, right? And so they have a history that we really don't understand as far as the context of a timeline, but their history is the Old Testament. The New Testament is the history of the church, beginning with Jesus technically beginning of the book of Acts, but the Acts of the Apostles are an extension of the Acts of Jesus, and so the New Testament is the history of the church, right? Church began in the first century, the Jewish nation began in 5,000-something B.C., right? However you do the math, right? Okay, um, and that origin actually probably close to 3,000-something, 3, 3, because we start with Abraham many times. Yes? No? Okay. <laughs> What do we mean when it's inspired? Evidence of its inspiration is found not only in the meaning of what the scriptures say, but how it was formed. And that's really what I want to look at real quick. Um, what does the Bible consist of? We all know it's 66 books divided into 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. Written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 authors who were from a variety of backgrounds. Kings like David, diplomats like Ezra, Nehemiah, prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, um, tent makers, the Apostle Paul, shepherds. I think Amos was a shepherd. Obadiah was a shepherd. Um, various socioeconomic backgrounds, all the writers. And yet all of their writing comes together into a cohesive, singular book that makes sense when you read it. Now listen, I don't know if you've read other religious books, as in like ancient books like the Quran or the... Uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the, the Hindu text, the Sanskrit text. I've read through those, and you have to really struggle to understand. In fact, you can't read the Quran without the Hadith next to it explaining what it possibly says. Right? But the cohesiveness of the scriptures, you begin in Genesis, and you understand 
what's happening is you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings. I mean, you keep going, and it makes sense. When they make references to past experiences, when Jesus makes reference to Deuteronomy or to Moses or to Noah, you understand what's happening. It's a huge timeline. And so 40 different authors put that together. And they didn't all get together. In fact, most of them weren't alive when the other ones were writing. Right? And so the cohesion of it tells us this is inspired. Next thing. It's predominantly written in three languages, Hebrew, Chaldee, and Greek. Chaldee is the language possibly that Hebrew emerged out of. So Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldeans, right? So Chaldee is like a root language that Hebrew and other Semitic languages all kind of pull out of, right? It's not actually birth language. So it's Hebrew, Chaldee, and Greek. And I made a little side note here. There are no Aramaic original letters in the New Testament. A lot of the new translations are like, oh, this comes from the Aramaic text. There is no Aramaic New Testament letter. There's none. There's a few Aramaic alliterations or inferences in the Old Testament, right? Because Aramaic was the common language toward the minor prophet's time. But Aramaic is not a biblical language. It was a common language, but Greek is what the New Testament is written in. Hebrew, predominantly, is what the Old Testament is written in. And so when you go into studying scriptures, like let's say you get a Strong's Concordance, a Thayer's Dictionary, um, those are the two languages you're unwrapping. And the reason I'm telling you that is because a lot of the new translations and the paraphrases, they look at other languages to derive meanings. And that's just bad literary practice. And I'm saying bad like a horrible people. I'm just saying you're going to get more ideas than what the original intent of the writer meant. Okay? So it's written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Right? Most of the New Testament was written in Europe. Believe it or not, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Well, technically that's Asia, but back then it was Europe. So modern-day Turkey. Most of the Old Testament was written in uh, Judean area, in uh, Iran, Iraq, when they were carried on to Babylon captivity. And uh, But you look at three different continents, okay? Uh, the scriptures are historically accurate. And this is a big, big thing. Because when you look at other scriptural, I'm sorry, ancient literature, the question of historical accuracy comes to place. If you read the Quran, the stories it tells about the Jews and the stories like Saul, Moses, David, they're completely different than the stories you read in the scriptures. And the historicity is very challenging in that the Quran calls people by the wrong name, whereas it's completely different than what the scriptures tell us about. And then, of course, even in the scriptures, when there's retelling of stories, like the story of Moses taking the children of Israel across the Red Sea, every time that story is retold, it's the same story. Whereas in the Quran, there, I believe, is 40 different references to the crossing of the Red Sea, and they're all contradictory within themselves. Does that make sense? And so as far as who died or who crossed first or where they were going or why they were doing it. So it's kind of scriptures are cohesive across 40 different writers telling the same story. Does that make sense? Okay, stay with me. And for you nerds, I know you're enjoying this. Everybody else, just bear with us, okay? The Old Testament was preserved without fault by the Jews. Um, the Jews, when they transferred scriptures, or I'm sorry, copied scripture, I don't know if you've ever, because we all have computers, we don't copy things anymore, we have copiers. But back in the day, before we had computers, I remember when you had to copy something, you usually copied like three or four words at a time or a sentence at a time. 
But when the Jews trans, trans, uh, what's the word? Transliterated, transferred the scriptures. It was a letter at a time, and if they were transferring Old Testament scripture, they were only allowed like three mistakes in the entire book. So let's say they're doing the scroll of Isaiah, and you're on mistake number three, and you're at the end of the scroll. You have to start over. Oh, help! Right? And there's no whiteout. None. And there's no like scratch it out. I meant this. No. They started over. In fact, it was such a methodical process. It was a very religious process that they reverenced the translating of the uh, copying of the scriptures so much so that. Every time they stopped to write the name Yahweh or God or Adonai, they would stop, wash their hands. It was very ceremonial, very reverent. They would not even speak the name. They would write and take out the vowels to just show the honor for who God was or he is. And so it was a very meticulous process. Now, there were scribes. You know, in the New Testament, you the scribes and the Pharisees. What do those scribes do? They're copying scriptures all day long. That's their full-time job. They're sitting around, open a scroll copy it. They used the new, used the old copies until you can't use them anymore because the scrolls were written mostly on sheepskin, goatskin, things like that, that would last. Uh, some of the New Testament is written on what they call papyrus. So papyrus actually comes from the Nile River Valley, right? Uh, Mark's Gospel is written on papyrus, most of it. And they would take papyrus, which is a plant, dry it out, and they make layers of it, kind of like plywood. But it would be paper, and it would last for a little while. And so Papyrus was the common uh, stationery, if you will. And then, of course, religious texts or texts that was very important, they would put it on sheepskin, goatskins, as a rule. Sometimes so there's some of the New Testament articles that are on papyrus. So that's kind of how they trans. That's how they wrote. And uh, as they're as they're putting these things together, the Old Testament, of course, the Jews are preserving. So from the five first five books, y'all know right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books, called the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses, they, for, from the time of Adam to Moses, how many years are we like? It's 1,500? Roughly. That period of time, there was no writings of Scripture. There's none. Now, possibly the book of Job is the earliest book. So Job is actually a big, long, forever long poem, right? That's <laughs> 40-something chapters, right? Got real poetic. But it's the story of Job. Job is potentially, many believe, a Gentile, a non-Jew, in the region where Abraham came out of. But he was a God-fearing man, and he was a man in covenant with God before covenant was really an idea. God's first covenant was with Adam, but he really didn't cut covenant with anybody until Abraham. So Job was probably the oldest book. I'm saying that to say, from Adam to Moses, how did they transfer scriptures if there was no writing down that we know of? It was through a process they called oral transmission. It sounds really complicated. It means they just told each other. But they didn't just tell each other like, hey, once upon a time, God made everything. No. The Jews put it to song, and every word was important. So when we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was not formed, and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the waters, right? And God said, let there be light. They would transfer that from generation to generation to generation verbatim. From the time of Adam, Adam tells Seth, his son, right, with the promise. 
Seth tells Jared. Jared tells Mahalalel. That's a fun name if you ever want to name your kid, right? Mahalalel, right? And it keeps going. And they get to Enoch, right? Keep going. Seth lives long enough. Seth lives long enough to see Noah, right? Noah tells Shem. Flood happens, wipes out humanity. Shem and Noah live long enough. Shem, I'm sorry, lives long enough after the flood to see Abraham. When Noah dies, Abraham is 57 years old. So they transfer this information from Adam, Seth, Noah, Abraham. I'm sorry, is it Seth? Did I miss that one? I said, okay. Are you confused? I have a book about this. It's in chapter three. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> um, so the transfer happens by word of mouth. The word of mouth is so effective. You remember that passage where you get to Exodus and it says that Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. But who trained Moses? His sister, Miriam. Right. He was learned in the ways of the Egyptians, but he always knew he was a Hebrew. And Moses learned from Miriam, from his, his mom, this story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form. Void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the waters and said, let there be light. So he was told that story his whole life. And so when he gets to deliver the children of Israel, and then he gets out in the wilderness, he begins to record by revelation and also by historical accounts. Now, we know that there was an oral transmission because that story of creation is not unique to just the scriptures. There's Babylonian text, early uh, Akkadian text, which is the culture that Abraham came out of, that speak of the creation. There's even Oriental text, which the Chinese, I don't know how they got over there so fast, but they're so old that they have accounts of creation similar to the biblical account of creation because it was by word of mouth that that story went out. So when Moses sits down to write, he's not making this up. It's been told to him for generation to generation to generation. All that to say, it was preserved very well by the Jews. Now, we're at a point, point A. Back in 1970-something, I forgot, 70-something, this little story happened. Y'all still with me? Yeah. I feel like a story man today. In 1970-ish, there was a, a Bedouin in the region called uh, Quorum, which is the desert area north of the Dead Sea. A little shep a shepherd boy, uh, Arabic shepherd boy, goes out into the, to the caves out there, which I've been out there. It's very dry. It looks like Arizona. It's super dry, super hot, and uh, no moisture. And he throws a rock into a cave, remote cave somewhere, and he hears a crack. True story. You can look it up. The book is called The Dead Sea Scrolls. Throws a rock into a cave, hears a crack like pottery breaking. He goes into there to find out what it is, and he pulls out this large urn. It sits, I've seen it, it sits about this high, and it's solid clay, right? He cracked it. So he takes it out, not realizing what it is. On top of it is a wax seal, breaks the wax seal over, pulls out this huge scroll. And the scroll is pretty tall, you know, it's like four feet tall. Unrolls it. He's Arab, he's a Palestinian, so he can't read Hebrew, right? Rolls it up takes it to his dad's that evening. He's a shepherd, right? Goat herder or whatever. Takes it to his father's house and said, look what I found. They don't know what it is, right? So his dad, 
takes it and buries it in the fresh soil in their backyard, thinking, I need to put it back in the ground. Then he starts thinking a little while that night, wakes up the next morning, pulls it back out of the ground, goes to market. This is a fun story. Goes to the market in Jerusalem where all the rabbis and everybody are sitting around, and uh, he shows them this scroll. And so a rabbi passing by sees it and realizes what it is, but like a good Jew, doesn't say anything, right? And he says, is this for sale? For $20, this rabbi buys the scroll of Isaiah. Oh, my gosh. The entire scroll of Isaiah. Oh, my gosh. Right? If you go to Jerusalem today, you can see the scroll. They have this place. It's like the, it's called the Iron Dome. And it's this huge scroll-looking building. And you walk in it, and you're not allowed to take pictures, or I'd have pictures to show you. You go in and there's this huge scroll and it wraps around this huge column that's probably like seven, eight feet wide. And it's the entire scroll of Isaiah that you can read. Long story short, after this rabbi bought the scroll of Isaiah from this, this Bedouin, uh, Palestinian guy, he brings it to his house and he starts looking at it. Well, sure enough, sold it for $20, so people start going looking for more stuff, right? And somehow, artifact, before they realized they were uncovering scriptures, they just thought they were ancient pieces of whatever, that be worth something in the black market. Pieces of it made it to the United States on the black market. And it was a historian, Jewish uh, historian slash rabbi, I believe at Yale, that recognized what it was. And I think he paid $250,000 for that scroll. Right? And then he turned it back over to the Israeli authorities and they put it in the museum. All that to say, then there was like this huge gold rush into Quorum. And all of these scrolls started showing up because the Jews hid them in the caves during the Babylonian captivity. They kept all the scrolls. And after they would translate, I'm sorry, after they would copy, they would take the old copies that were no longer usable because they were tattered or torn or whatever. They'd roll them up, they'd put them in these urns, and they'd seal the top off with wax. But because it was the word of God, they didn't want to destroy it, so they put them in these caves, kind of like burying them, kind of like we reverence the American flag, but much more extravagant respect. After a while, what happened is they just started building up in these caves during the Babylonian captivity. And then during the gold rush kind of season in the 1970s into 1985, they were able to recover almost every book of the Old Testament out of those caves. Except one book. Anyone want to guess? The book of Esther. Because they were in Persia. In Iraq. And the book of Esther has no references to the name of God. So the Jews didn't count it as sacred text, just historical text. So every book, they have fragments of, or the entirety of. And the reason I tell you that whole great story is, the scrolls that the Jews have today were perfectly copied from the scrolls they found. There was no errors. So when someone says there's errors in the Old Testament, I don't know what they're talking about, right? Perfectly copied. So who do we have to thank for the Old Testament? Every Jew, right? They have held the word of God without flaw. Okay. So the scriptures are historically accurate, the Old Testament. Okay, the authenticating many transcripts. The transcripts. Manuscripts, I'm sorry. How do we know that what we look at in the Old Testament are the scrolls that were found? How do we know that they are the actual scrolls? Somebody just didn't make them up and put them in the corner and then try to make some money off of them. 
there's a couple of things we look at, and I know we're running out of time, so we're gonna move quick. First thing we look at is how far of a day of the event, when did something happen, and how far or how late did the document appear, right? So let's say the, the scroll of, let's say the book of John, right? When did John happen? John probably wrote that around 90 AD. Okay, how old is the document that, that we have, the copy that we have? So what's the time difference between those two? Do you understand? Um, the reason there's a time difference is because we don't have the original manuscript. There's copies made of the original over and over and over and over and over, right? And so what's the closest we can get? And I know what you're thinking, how do they date the age of a manuscript? Well, they date it by knowing what it's written on, what type of um, ink, and ink and paper that it was written on, and then also other writers of that time would cite that passage. So it was in circulation, right? And so they had numerous ways to kind of date those passages. How do we know when a passage was written, like the actual text? How do we know that John was written in uh, 90 AD and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written in 70 AD? Because of what they say about who's in power, who's in charge, the Roman official or the, the Greek conqueror, and then the references to the temple. They wouldn't reference the temple as if it was there when it would have been destroyed. Whereas when you get to John, the illusion is that the temple is destroyed, right? And so historical markers tell us kind of when things were written. And then, uh, like, let's play, for instance, if I, if I was writing a book and I say, man, I had a hard time downloading this, you would know I didn't write that in the 1800s because the word downloading something was not even there. Does that make sense? So there would be like alliterations and symbolisms, even though it was inspired by God, it was human writers that would use the verbiage of the colloquialisms of the time, and that would date the writings. Does that make sense? Okay, so the time span between the copies that we have and the original writer, if that's a long, long time, then there's more um, plausibility for discrepancies. Does that make sense? Um, the next thing is how many original manuscripts are there? By original, I mean close enough to the, the original writing. How many copies do we have? So when the New Testament came out, that's what we're talking about here. When the New Testament came out, it didn't come out as one book. It was a bunch of letters. Paul would send the letters to primarily Antioch. The church in Antioch took it upon themselves because they're great Jews. They knew how to copy the text. They made multiple, multiple copies, sent it out to the other churches. Those churches made copies and sent it out to the other churches. And so when we collect all of those copies and they all look the same, all the similarities tell us that's what the original letter said. Does that make sense? And the variances are so minor, like punctuation or italics, or it's not italicized, those kind of things. Um, so how many years between the text was written and the copies that we have? We just talked about that. So here's some comparisons of ancient literature. Trust me, it's going to get good here in a minute. Plato's writings. Everybody know Plato? There's only 210 copies of Plato's writings, and the earliest manuscript we have of Plato's writing is 1,300 years between when it was written and when Plato was alive. 1,300 years, right? Does anybody deny that Plato said what he said? No, everybody accepts it, right? 1,300 years. Next one, Caesar's writings, 251 copies, and there's 950 years between when it was written and the earliest known manuscripts. Almost 1,000 years, right? We know Augustus Caesar, li I mean, Caesar lived, we know the things that he said, like we have all the, you know, Shakespearean plays built off of it, right? Okay, Homer's Iliad, great Greek piece of literature, 1,757 copies, 400 years between when it was written and the earliest known manuscripts. Now watch this. The New Testament, 
There are 5,795 Greek copies and over 30,000 in other languages. And there's only 25 to 50 years between when it was written and the earliest known manuscript. We have manuscripts that the apostles saw. Right? So the accuracy of those texts is pretty hard to defy. John saw the manuscripts that we have. So when you go to uh, Israel, there's a section of 1 John. It's called P57 is what they marked it. I don't remember what it stands for. But it's the book of John. And on one side is like chapter 3, six verses on the back side because torn up is chapter 5 or chapter the other side of chapter 3, whatever. That was John's writing, right? And so we have very clear historical evidence that the scriptures that the apostles had are the same scriptures that we have today. Okay. Uh, jump to number four. You with me? There are thousands of original manuscripts to validate the authenticity of the Bible's message. The four gospels are the only exhaustive text in which we read about Jesus, his disciples from the first century. Each was written by an eyewitness. Now, let's talk about the accounts of Jesus, right? You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark is the first gospel to be written. Mark is not an eyewitness. So how did he get the information that he had? John Mark is the one that traveled with Paul and Bar Barnabas. Remember on the first missionary journey, halfway there, John Mark bails out on them because he wants to go home. He's a young kid. Like, Paul's crazy. Barnabas, get me out, right? John Mark goes home. When he goes home to Jerusalem, Peter picks him up and begins to disciple him. Peter tells him all that Jesus did. In fact, every time you, most every chapter in Mark, there's a reference to Peter because guess who's telling the story? Peter's telling the story, right? There's also another little secret that you found out in reading Mark. Peter didn't know how to read and write. And so he needed someone to write in Greek, the quantity in Greek, and tell what Jesus did. So John Mark writes the first letter because Peter can't read and write, and therefore Mark comes out. Mark comes out probably around 45 to 50 AD. But before Mark writes his first gospel, the book of Galatians is written. That's the first letter to the New Testament church. Paul is writing to the book of Galatians after 14 years in the wilderness. He comes back, and he's an apostle to the Gentiles. Barnabas goes up to the city called Tarsus finds Paul, brings him back after his experience in Damascus. Remember, he got knocked off the horse. Three and a half years he spends in the desert, and then he goes back home to Tarsus. He's camping out there. He's planting churches. He's discipling people with no other apostle working with him, right? And then Barnabas goes up there and finds Paul, brings him down to Jerusalem to sit in front of the other apostles. And then after that meeting, it's believed Paul writes the letter to the Galatians, who Jesus is. The Galatians are not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're Europeans. Right? So the first letter was written to white people. <laughs> to have no Jewish background. That's why Galatians is so pivotal because it wraps in Jewish history, who Jesus was, Abrahamic covenant, and why the Gentiles need Jesus. And Paul from that place was called the apostle to the Gentiles. Right? So after he writes that, then James writes his letter to the Jewish people during the persecution. It's believed they probably wrote it both at the same time. So James is writing, Paul's writing, Galatians, and then the book of James. And then after that, Mark's epistle comes out. It's the first biographical information about Jesus. Because Galatians is not about biographical information about Jesus. It's about the new covenant. 
James is not the biographical information about Jesus. It's about how to follow Jesus, but there's no birth, death, resurrection, right? So when Mark writes it, it's the first piece they have about who Jesus is. But Mark doesn't start at the birth of Jesus. He starts at what? John the Baptist. He starts with the miracles, right? And then after Mark's gospel is put out, then Matthew and Luke come out, and Matthew gives an account to the Jews of the Messianic promise Jesus would fulfill. That's why Matthew probably cites more of Old Testament scriptures than any other of the synoptic writers. And then Luke takes it up, who's believed to be a Gentile, takes it up on his terms to give a full record of everything Jesus did. So he's investigating, writing. He's kind of like your lawyer of the New Testament. And Luke doesn't just stop at the book of Luke. It's one big book. Luke and Acts are together, right? So it's one massive book that he writes. So when Luke and Acts are written, at that time, Paul is traveling, and then out comes the letters of uh, 1 Thessalonians because they believe Jesus came back. So Paul writes the 1 Thessalonians to say, hey, listen, Jesus did not come back yet. There's so much work to be done. And then the rest of the epistles follow after that. And you can kind of Google the chronology of how the letters came out because it tells you the significance of what the messages were. Okay? So um, the four Gospels are eyewitness accounts. The epistles are the earliest writings that have survived from the first century. First book being Galatians and then James. More copies of ancient texts to compare between each other. I'm sorry, the more copies of an ancient text compared between each other, the more accurate a work can be. There are 5,800 complete fragments of Greek manuscripts cataloged, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 manuscripts in various ancient languages such as Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopian, Coptic, and Armenian. The oldest copy of the New Testament, you can find it today, it's in, it's in Britain, uh, is it's called Codus Sinaiticus, which dates around 380. That's like the first compiled New Testament, right? But the New Testament was there long before that. It's the first time they took all the books and put them together. Okay? You still with me? Yes. All right. Um, where were the Gospels written? The book of Mark was written in Rome. Uh, Luke was probably written in Antioch or possibly Rome. Uh, the book of John, written in Ephesus, uh, because John was the pastor of the church of Ephesus. He planted that church, and then Paul took it, and then Paul gave it to Timothy, right? The church of Ephesus had the best pastors. John, Paul, Timothy. And when Jesus shows up, he says, what? You've forgotten your first love, right? So when you read John's admonition to Ephesus, he's writing to them at the end of his life. And the history lays out this was a powerful church that lost its first love. Okay, rabbit trail. Questions about the Bible. Can the scriptures, and this is kind of where we're getting to the meat of this, as we look at the full context of the Old Testament and New Testament, a lot of questions come up, especially today, because the scriptures are viewed as ancient literature. Does it really apply to today? You know, so are we supposed to adapt with the scriptures to, to the times that we're in? And that kind of logic kind of emerges out of this question. Can't the scriptures be, mean different things to different people? Okay, so how many of you guys have ever been in a conversation and you share scripture and then somebody says, I think that scripture means this. And it's totally not what you thought it meant. And then the, the, the accommodation we give to each other is, well, it can mean anything to anybody, right? And here's the truth, you ready? Each scripture, each scripture is written with an intended audience, an intended message, and a specific words to communicate the message. Though the application of scripture is left to the reader, the meaning is not. So every verse, because it's God-breathed, 
And God is not a God who's going to say one thing to one person, one thing to another person using the same words. We call that lying, right? <laughs> we call that deception, right? And so, and I'm not just making that up. Here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 to 21, Peter, now remember, Peter recites to Mark the first synoptic gospel, right? And he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the experience at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is when this happened. He says, listen, we're not making this stuff up. In fact, he says, I was with him. Then the voice came from heaven on the mountain. Remember when Jesus was not just human anymore, he became visibly the son of God, right? Put on his supernatural nature. He says, we heard from the excellent Lord. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now watch what he says here. And we heard this voice which came from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Would you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star, meaning Jesus, rises in your hearts? Watch this. Knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, listen, we had this great experience, but compared to that experience... You have the word of God. That's how valid it is. Let me tell you why that context or that analogy is important. People have great experiences, spiritual experiences, but it never alters what the word of God says. You could say, man, I had this dream and God told me to do this. But if it's contradictory to what God says in the scriptures, it's not God's voice. Peter's saying here, listen, we saw the most extravagant experience, and yet even after that, we have a more sure word of prophecy, which is what? The scriptures. He says, we have a prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And he says, no prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation. Let me tell you a little secret. When somebody says, man, I read this scripture, and I got this deep revelation that only I got. Red light should go off, right? It's not for private interpretation. Well, I know it says this, but I feel like God told me this. It's not for private interpretation, right? And listen, I, and I'm not trying to be critical, but there are translations of the Bible that someone says, I have this revelation, and therefore, this is what this really means. No, that contradicts what Peter's saying here. Right? It's not for private interpretation. The next question that I often get about the scriptures is, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? Now, that's a valid question, right? And so I kind of put it out there. Number one, you have to clarify what contradiction are we talking about, right? Many times people are just repeating that there are contradictions not knowing what they are and if they are valid contradictions. Are contradictions because of a partial reading of scripture, confusing symbolism of the poetry books with the books of history and law? And many times that's where contradictions come in. People read one of the poetic books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and they try to make it a literal text 
when they compare it to like Genesis, right? Or the New Testament text, the Synoptic Gospels, right? And so when there's a contradiction or seeming contradiction, many times it can be unraveled by knowing what you're talking about. And to help you out with that, I wrote, the Old Testament is written in various genres and understanding it clearly means knowing what form of writing you're reading, okay? Uh, I brought two little boxes there. The first one's the Old Testament. The next one's the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right? Well, it's not Deuteronomy. So Genesis to Deuteronomy is what we call the law. It is history, right? It's a creation account. It's a story from Adam to Noah to Abraham all the way to Moses, right? It's history. But it's also called the Pentateuch, which is the moral law. And that really picks up at... Well, Exodus is history, so Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is the Mosaic law, or the penance, the moral law, right? And then you have the history books, right? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Samuel, First and Kings, First and Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, um, Esther. Those are just the history of the uh, Jewish people. Now, let me tell you a little something about the history part. In that genre, it's just being recorded what happened, not what God wanted. It's just recording what happened. So when it tells us a story about um, one of the judges of Israel sacrificing his daughter, that doesn't mean God wants you to go out and sacrifice your kid, right? It's just telling you this is what happened. It's history book. But a lot of times people read that and think that's the contradiction. God's telling people to kill their children. Well, you're reading the history of what happened, not directive on what to do. The directive on what to do is in the law. Right? When he says, you shall not murder. Does that make sense? And so knowing what you're reading helps clarify what is being said. Okay? So you have the history books. And then you have the poetry books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. They're poetry books because they're written as ballads and songs and poems. And they're making metaphorical allusions, inferences of the nature and character of God, the nature and character of humanity, where Israel is a nation, those kind of things. They're not literal, right? And people that take those books and try to make literal statements out of them are kind of going to end up in error. So if you use those poetry books and you say, I can tell when Jesus is coming back because Psalms says that he's going to come and whatever, there's a poetic, um, poetic, prophetic word or whatever, you're really taking it out of context, right? It's a poetic book. It's inferences for... Um, understanding the nature and character of God or the scriptures or what David was going through. Okay? The next part is the prophets. So you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. What's the difference? The length of the book. Right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not like Isaiah was better than Amos. It's just Isaiah wrote a whole lot. Ezekiel wrote a whole lot. Daniel wrote a whole lot. And then the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. Those guys, they wrote like a page or two. And they were called upon, the Lord spoke to them to give a word to the nation of Israel. It was usually one brief letter. They either had access to the king's court or they were just a, nom uh, a voice that everybody listened to, recorded their sayings, and then after they died, they were like, oh, they must have been a prophet, right? And so that's where, they, that's where the, how the Old Testament is divided up. The New Testament, pretty easy. I don't have to go into that too much. Biographical is the four, go four gospels. The first three are called the synoptic gospels. All that means is they're in a order, chronological order, whereas John is not in chronological order. It doesn't start at the beginning of Jesus' life. It starts at the wedding of Cain of Galilee. And John is writing at the end of his book, says, I'm writing these things to you so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. So John's stories always point to us to who Jesus said he was. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. 
Before Abraham was, I am. I am the living water. If anyone comes to me, you'll never thirst. Remember that? All the stories of John end with Jesus making a declaration of, I am this. Right? And then he goes into the Passion Week. Okay? Um, and then you have the letters, which is Paul's letters, uh, James's letters, Peter's letters. Um, right? That's it. Paul, James, Peter, the letters that they wrote to the early church. Uh, when the early church was being formed in the first century, they never left Jerusalem, ex with the exception of Paul. And so all the apostles stayed in Jerusalem until persecution got so bad that they eventually had to disperse. And that's what Peter calls the dispersion. James refers to it as the dispersion. Then they had to leave that area of Jerusalem and then go into the world and preach the gospel. Um, and then the last book of, of uh, John in the New Testament is the book of prophecy, which is Revelation, right? And Revelation, believe it or not, is not a hard book to understand when you go in knowing that this is prophecy. This is not a chronological layout of events to come. This is a prophetic image of what's happening in the world from heaven's view. Does that make sense? Give you a quick idea. You know, the first part of Revelation, it talks about the woman has a son, a child. The dragon comes to try to eat the child, and then the earth receives the woman and hides her for a season, and the child will one day rule the nations. People read that and think, oh my God, what is this? It's the Christmas story. Right? The woman is Mary. The earth that hid the child is the nation of Egypt. The child that will rule the nations is Jesus. The dragon is King Herod, right? It's the Christmas story. But he's telling us the Christmas story from a prophetic view, what the angels are seeing and God is seeing. But if you read that and you think, who's the woman now? <laughs> yeah, who's the dragon now? You know? You're totally going to get confused. But you have to read it as a word of prophecy. So John, when he gives the book of Revelation, this is free, he gives seven uh, seals, right? Seven trumpets, then seven seals, and then seven bowls. They all overlap each other, right? They're not like one set's going to happen. So there's 21 judgments. They're all overlapping. The seven uh, trumpets speak up that from the time of Jesus till now what will happen to humanity, Right? The seven seals that are broken is how humanity will destroy itself. And then the seven bowls is how God will step in and judge mankind for their sins. That's it. And you have to read it in that lens to understand all of it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. It is unclear for a reason. Because you and I will start creating some plans based on what we think we know. Right? That's why Jesus, when he ascends... 33-something A.D., he says, to, I'm sorry, when he closes the book of Revelation, he says, Behold, I come quickly. You're like, it's not very quick, <laughs> right? <laughs> 2,000 years later, it's not quick. Well, what is he speaking from? The prophetic sense, it's quick. 2,000 years is nothing yet, right? But he says that at the beginning of Revelation and at the end of Revelation. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Get ready, right? Okay. Um, the historical account of the New Testament. Two references that I'll make there, and then we're going to questions. We we'll have plenty of time for questions. Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Most of the epistles are the writings of the New Testament writers. They will tell you the purpose of why they're writing at the very beginning of the letter or at the very end of the letter, right? And so Luke tells us at the beginning. He says, "Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were." From the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke says, I'm going to write for you a chronological biography, if you will, of Jesus and what he did in order of how they happened. Now, how could Luke do this? Number one, he had to be alive at that time. And then he had to know all the eyewitnesses at that time. I know we think, how did he compile all this information? Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his time, is about 30 miles in diameter. Smaller than orange, right? Smaller than orange. Population of Galilee during the time of Jesus' life, because he was raised in Capernaum, but then he spent his adult life in Galilee, right? So why don't we know anything about Jesus as a child? Well, because nobody was with him in Capernaum. Everybody was with him in Galilee, right? And so we don't know anything about his childhood because there was no gospel writers in Capernaum, right? He came to Galilee to begin his ministry. So when he comes to Galilee to begin his ministry, that's when all the writers kind of begin. Now, we get the account of the birth of Jesus from Luke. Luke possibly spoke to Mary, right? Because remember how it says Mary pondered these things in her heart? Well, how would he know Mary pondered these things in her heart unless Mary said, I was really troubled about this stuff when it happened, right? So it was eyewitness account from Mary, and then the story of Jesus getting lost. Who did you learn that from? From Mary, right? And then, of course, Luke may have been there during the time of Jesus, possibly. I mean, his age difference doesn't tell us that he's you know, way out there. But he got it from all these eyewitness accounts. Um, when, when he's writing these eyewitness accounts, all these stories, and he's putting them together, it's in a population of maybe 25 to 30,000 people in a small zip code of 30 miles or so. So here's the benefit of why I'm saying that. If he got something wrong, somebody would say, that's not how it happened. You ever been at a barber shop, somebody tells a story and you're like, no, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> this is how it really happened, right? So when the, the, the Jewish leaders get together, they get together in the synagogue, right? Not the temple, in the synagogue. In the synagogue, they would do the ceremonial reading of the scriptures. They'd be like, oh, you remember when Jesus read this passage in Isaiah and he said this, and then we all looked at him like he was crazy and then went sat down in that chair for Messiah? So he would sit there and he would talk with them. It was a regular practice, still a practice in many Eastern cultures, where they sit around and they tell stories about what has happened to their kids, to their kids' kids among each other. <clears throat> Funny story, when I was in Africa, the first time I went, we went out to this little village and uh, had a little meeting, whatever, and people came and we preached the gospel and we prayed for the sick and maybe 25, 30 people got healed. I mean, blind eyes open, deaf ears open, a few demons come out. And as we're driving away from the village, you know, just ideas come into my head, like, what do these people do after we're gone? Like, there's no TV, there's no electricity, there's no... There's no entertainment. They don't even have a football to throw around, you know? And they wouldn't know what to do with a football if they had one to throw around. There's, I mean, there's like sticks and there's cans, you know? And so I'm asking our missionary, and he says, he says to me, Stephen, it's such a remote community, so small, that they'll talk about what happened today for years. They'll say, we went to the meeting. My kid was blind. He'd been blind for so long. They prayed for him, they put their hand like this on his eyes, and then his eyes were open. And that's how you read the gospel accounts, right? When, when the man comes to Jesus and he says, my son, he's been 
possessed since he was a child. Well, how did they know that? They sat down and they talked to him afterward. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked, how long has this been happening? They heard the stories and they give clear details of every story. Now, here's the inspiration um, earmark, if you will. They all have the same details, right? They all have the names right. It wasn't like, oh, I think his name was, uh, you know, Peter, but maybe it was John. And No, they all had the names right. They all had the cities right. They had the place where it happened. They had the buildings that it occurred in. It was all accurate. So it tells us they were all there. And when Luke goes out to record, you know, like Jairus' daughter and the woman who, who grabbed Jesus' uh, cloak as he, was, as he was passing through the crowd, he got the story from her. She'd been gone to many doctors, never gotten better, and she spent all of her life with it. You don't get that in a passing conversation. He sat down and said, tell me what happened, right? To this day, you go to Israel, and you go to places where the miracles happen, and whether it's a tour guide or the people that live there, they'll tell you, this is what happened. And it's pretty accurate. Because the preservation of that history is what gives that place identity. Does that make sense? And so Luke goes through and he collects all the stories and he puts it together to Theophilus, who's a believer, and says, I've given a full account of this, right? Okay. Um, John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. And John's motive is a little bit different. It's not a chronology. Remember what I told you earlier? He says, Jesus did many miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, speaking of his letter. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So John tells you why he's writing the New Testament, is the book of John, right? Okay, the next question. How can I read the Bible and understand it? I'm going to rush through this so we can get to questions. Number one, when you sit down to read your Bible, expect God to speak to you. Some of you are like me, you're nerds, and you want to like pull everything apart, right? And study every word in five languages. No, just expect God to speak to you as you read the English version that you have in front of you, right? Um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says it like this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What does that mean? When God, when you're reading the scriptures, if you'll open your heart and say, God, speak to me, God will speak to you through the passage. We call that things, sometimes we reference it as like, it jumped out on the page or it really meant something to me. What is happening? God is speaking to you through the scriptures. And when God speaks to you through the scriptures, it doesn't contradict other parts of the scripture, right? Because there's always this fear, well, what if I think God's saying something and it's wrong? Well, you got to read the full counsel of the scriptures. That doesn't mean you read your Bible, every, the whole Bible, but read the paragraph before, the paragraph after to get an understanding of what's happening, okay? Um, read from a good translation. I could harp on this forever, but I'm not. Read from a good translation. And I'm going to tell you, one of the prophecies of the last times, I think it's in Amos chapter 6, he says that the word of the Lord will be scarce. And I always thought for a long time, well, they're going to burn all Bibles. And ironically, that's not what's happened in our culture today. It's not that Bibles are not accessible. It's that there's so many accessible, so many translations, that it's hard now to even find what the actual in original intent of the writers, the gospel writers, the Old Testament writers mean, because so much has been changed, Right? find a translation that's accurate. Now, there's two ways to read the Bible, as a student and as a believer, right? Not that students are not believers or believers are not students. But as a student, when you're reading God's Word, you need to go to the most original manuscript to study the text, right? And I'm not saying like you're becoming a theologian. I'm just saying you really want to know what the Scripture means. 
And I've listed for you the Bibles that come from the most original text called the Textus Receptus there. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you go get those versions of the Bible, you're going to be like, this is Old English. They're the best translations into English from the Greek manuscripts, original Greek manuscripts, right? For all those King James haters, King James is still the best translation out there, right? Uh, closest one to it is called the Phillips Bible, which was around World War II, and it was an Anglican theologian priest that translated the New Testament. But he only did the New Testament, he knew the whole Bible. That's a really, and it was an idea for an idea translation. Okay, but those are the basic. Now, look if you're in here and you're like, man, Stephen, I have an NIV, I have an NLT, I have a living Bible. You're not going to hell, I promise, right? All I'm saying is, as you're studying the Word as a student, have multiple versions so you can really get to the meaning of what it's saying. Same thing with the manuscripts in the early first century. They'd look at multiple copies to make sure they got the right message. Look at multiple translations to make sure you're getting the right message, right? Um, find something you enjoy reading. Does that make sense? Like, if you have a difficult time reading King James, you're not getting any extra points in heaven. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you're just getting confused is what's happening. So my favorites are the one that I read the most is the New King James Version, right? And even in the New King James Version, I've found, not because I'm brilliant, but it's just common, there's a few errors of translation, right? And so I would just challenge you, find a translation to study and find a translation to enjoy, right? New King James, I read it to enjoy it, but when I'm studying, I read the King James, and I read Young's Little Translation, and I have this tremendous, monstrous Bible software program, right, that does that. And you don't need to do all that. I know all you guys are thinking, buy new stuff, but don't, right? Find something that works for you. Okay, the next point. Uh, so, expect God to speak. Read from a good translation. You see my suggestions. Next thing, read through a book of the Bible. That doesn't mean at once, but read through a book of the Bible and then read through it again and do it a couple times. Like, read through the book of John. Read through the book of Luke. Read one of the epistles. And however many days it takes you to do it, but read through a whole book. And what it is, it's kind of like this. You ever watched a movie and had to get up and go do something and come back and sit down? And then you get up and go do something and you have to come back and sit down? And after a while you're like, I don't know what this movie's about. I got parts of it. And it's the same thing. If you jump around in your Bible from chapter here in Galatians and you go to Luke and then you go to the Old Testament, you're never going to get the full picture of what that book is about. So read the whole thing at once or in one stretch of a week or whatever it is, right? Read the whole thing and get, let the Lord speak to you, right? Because every writer wrote the book that he wrote with a specific purpose to a specific audience for a specific message. And now we have all these great tools in your Bible. Before you read the book, you'll have like the background. I'll tell you a little story about it. I'll tell you about the writer, when and where. And you can use all those tools. Don't neglect those tools. Don't be like, I want God to tell me everything. He's telling you. It's in the book. Just read it, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> hearing from God, read through the book of, of the Bible. Break each reading session into natural breaking points. Most of our Bibles have like subtitles, right, over paragraphs. That's great flow of ideas. The Bible wasn't written like that, but translators, as they translated over time, broke it up into chunks that you can understand, right? If you read 67 verses in a chapter, you're going to step back and think, what did I just read, right? But if you read 10, 15 verses and you process that with the Holy Spirit, then it means something to you. That's the best way to do it, okay? Um, Something I do pretty regular, I read a Proverbs a day, right? There's 31 Proverbs, there's 31 days in most months. You get a freebie on 30 days in February, it's party, you know what I'm saying, 29. Um, but read a Proverbs a day. And Proverbs is just a lot of great wisdom that God can speak to you, right? Um, 
look for a good app plan. I know the church offers um, a reading plan that you can follow. I would encourage you, don't just get stuck in the Old Testament and get stuck in the New Testament. Kind of, you know, read a chapter in the New Testament, go through the book of Luke, and at the same time, read a chapter in the Old Testament, go through a book of the Bible there, right? Um, okay. Discovery Bible Study. Now, I've listed for you, and it's on this page in the back, kind of the reading plan that me and my kids, my family, and our family Bible reading time, we've kind of gone through. And there's stories, right? It starts with the Genesis account, goes through Abraham, uh, then it goes through the idea of sacrifice, goes to Isaiah, and then you get into the New Testament, and you get into Jesus, right? It's a really good 30, 28-day plan, right? You don't have to use it, but it's a really great plan that a lot of people use. Okay, after reading each, after each reading, great way to get from what, what you're reading, get things, is to journal, right? What do you think God is saying to you? It doesn't have to be like earth-shattering revelation. It just might mean, don't talk so much. I got it. That's what God's saying to me today. Don't talk so much. Or it might be, God's speaking to me, you need to let out some emotions and tell people what you're feeling. You know what I'm saying? But as I'm reading, look for what is God trying to tell me and then journal about it. When you write down what you think God is saying to you, sometimes the Holy Spirit starts telling you more as you're writing. Does that make sense? Because you're in a position of receiving revelation when you're writing. So discuss the passage, what it says about God, Jesus, or his plan. What does that mean? When I say discuss, it also means write. And then what does it say about me and people and humanity as a whole? Third question. According to this study, what I'm reading, what am I going to do different? And that takes a little bit of brain work. It takes a little bit of, okay, Holy Spirit, show me what I can do different. If I read the story of the prodigal son, what am I going to change in my life about this? Is there somebody I need to forgive? Is there somebody I need to pray for to come back to the Father? Do I need to go back to the Father? What does this mean for me? Does that make sense? The last thing, well, that is the last thing. What do I need to change in my life? Here's the apex of good Bible reading. If nothing changes in your behavior after you read passage after passage, day after day, you're getting nothing out of it. Things have to change in your life. Holy Spirit has to tell you, change this. We're not reading just to become smart. We're not reading just because it's a great literary work. We're not reading to become scholars, right? We're not reading so we can preach things to other people. We're reading to change our lives. So when I read, Holy Spirit convicts me, not necessarily of sin, but sometimes just attitudes and thoughts. And then I have to make a conscious decision, I'm changing this, and then a behavioral decision to change it. And that's when God's word becomes powerful, right? Because not only does he tell you how to do it or what to do, but then he gives you an ability to do it because you're obeying. That's what grace is called, okay? Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening.